So today is our first Sunday in this new building, uh, this space that we have to worship Jesus Christ, the most important thing we do. And it's a place where we can mark milestones like weddings and funerals. And it's a place where we can finally house our church offices. Um, Our church offices have never been in the building where we worship. It's a place where we can invite kids of all ages to learn about Jesus. And it's a place where, that can serve as a ministry launch pad for training leaders and equipping church planters that will multiply ministry and mercy and acts of justice citywide and regionwide. But just as importantly, this building is a place for our city, for us to serve the poor, to welcome our neighbors into artist events. Last night, Arts Incarnate, the art ministry of our church, held its first event in this room. They, there was a dance floor installed in the very center here, and it was a wine and flamenco dance evening, and there was this kind of Spanish dancing. And it's a place where we hope to gather stakeholders in the city who are laboring in various spheres for the flourishing of the city. We've designed this building. We, we put in extra time and effort and meetings and money to design locking mechanisms so that all the little parts of the building can be offered to the public and it doesn't wear out our volunteer system by having to be here to monitor it. So somebody can have access to each part of the building and we can be super generous with it. And we designed it that way. We designed it so that this could be an affordable public utility for multi-purpose um, events. And now we're moving in. We, we need to learn how to use this building in the ways that we've envisioned. And we need to learn how to let this new property open up for us new avenues of service to our king and to this city. And now for this first Sunday, as I've been thinking and praying about what's the most appropriate thing for us to look at in God's word on in this our first Sunday to worship here together it struck me that the most important thing for us to start with is this the gospel the whole reason we gather turn to the back of your worship guide I think inside the back cover there is a there's a a page there of our vision and our values look there at the top the church of the incarnation exists for the glory of God and the good of the city through the gospel of Jesus Christ we're we're not just a public utility we're not just for the good of the city we do it in a unique way we do it as a church through the gospel and then under that vision statement it lists our nine core values these are not aspirational values these are descriptions of the things our church has valued from day one the things we've been committing ourselves to the things we've been using to say no to other stuff for these nine core values I hope that this week you would take that and at some point this week read over them in a quiet place and pray for each of them that God would do this again and again, these things in our church, and pray that God would open up your own heart and your own life to ways you can step more deeply into these values. But what I want us to do this morning is look at the foundational value, that very first one. Let's read it out loud together. We gather around the magnetic center of Jesus Christ 
Through his life, death, and resurrection, God's kingdom has arrived on earth to renew all things, our relationship with God, with ourselves, others, and the world. You, of our core values, this is the core value, the core, core value. This is, think of this like the heartbeat of our church. This is the value that pumps the blood and the oxygen through everything that we do. And today of all days, this is a wonderful day for us to tell again the old, old story that drives us. Now, if you have a Bible, turn to our gospel reading, Mark chapter 1. And if you've got a Bible and you're new to the Bible, there's a table of contents. Scan down. It's about three quarters of the way through your table of contents. Mark chapter 1. In my Bible, that's right at page 1,000. So... Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Here we have in Mark's gospel, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth. Our Lord, this is the first, he steps onto the platform of his ministry and this is the first thing he says. It's verse 15. The first words out of his mouth are this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So when Jesus steps onto the stage, the first thing he does is make an announcement. God's kingdom is finally, the time is fulfilled, it's finally here. The kingdom of God has finally arrived. Now that, that little phrase, in Jesus, the kingdom of God is here, that is the gospel. So if you've been confused by what is the gospel, if if you've had friends ever ask you what is the gospel... Memorize this. The gospel is this. In Jesus, the kingdom is here. Now, that's a condensed version of it. It's like, it's like if, I, if you're going on a trip, you take all these complicated things that you're going to carry on the trip, and you put them in a suitcase, and you latch it up. And that suitcase is how you carry a lot of stuff in, in the least awkward way possible, right? I mean, there's more awkward ways. You could put your toothbrush in your mouth, and you could put on all the clothes you're going to, and you could sling all your shoes. But the But the most efficient way to carry a bunch of stuff on a journey is a suitcase. And that's what summary statements are. They're suitcases. The whole rest of Mark's gospel opens the suitcase and unpacks it. Look at verse 14. After after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. What's the gospel? Then he tells you. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That is the gospel. Finally, this has happened. Now, this is the central fact of Jesus' life. If you had woke Jesus up in the middle of the night and poked him, he would have said, the kingdom of God is here. Like that, that was the center of him. That was the thing that he was always talking about. That was the thing that he was always thinking about. It was the central fact. And because it was the central fact of Jesus' life, it's the central fact of a church. Now, let's unpack the suitcase. What does it mean to say that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived? Well, the neat thing about it is that Jesus actually tells us what it means. And one of my favorite ways to see this is that in Mark's gospel, he he shows us the meaning of the gospel in four dimensions. He shows us the mean, he explains to us what it means to say that in him the kingdom has arrived. He explains to us that in four ways. Number one, in his miracles. Number two, in his teaching. Number three, in his death. 
And number four, in his resurrection. So if you're a Baptist and you like taking notes, those are the four points for this morning. The four dimensional picture of the gospel. This news that's good. Gospel means news that's good. The news that is so good is that in Jesus, his kingdom has arrived. And when we look at his miracles, his teaching, his death and resurrection, it unpacks that for us. All right. So let's start with his miracles. Go to Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, we, starting in verse 35, there are four miracles in a row, starting in 435. It starts with Jesus calming the storm. That's the first miracle. And what we see in these four miracles of Jesus is that in his miracles, he's showing us a picture. He's demonstrating what his kingdom is, what the gospel is. Okay, here we go. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. When Jesus calms the sea, he's demonstrating what makes it good news that the kingdom is here. Number one, nature is going to be at peace with humans. That's good news. If you've ever lost your shirt because of an act of nature, it is good news that the creator shows up and says, notice what he says in verse 39, to the storm that's about to kill some people. He speaks to the storm. He awoke. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. So what does it mean? Why is it good news that God's kingdom has arrived? It's good news because when the creator brings his kingdom, nature itself is renewed and restored by the power of the creator. And he delivers us from the war between humans and nature. And it goes both ways, doesn't it? Nature's declaring war on us. It rises up, it destroys people's lives, it kills women and children, it wipes out everybody's asset, it erases people's ability. It's it's like this threat against us. And Jesus looks at it and says, peace, quit that. I did not make nature to be at war with humans, but it goes the other way too. In the kingdom of God, humans are being remade so that they stop destroying nature. The kingdom of God is so that we don't have to wipe out mountaintops in order to give us energy. The kingdom of God is so that tsunamis don't rise up and erase civilizations. The kingdom of God is demonstrated in this miracle. It's about the renewal and the restoration of humans and nature. Now, isn't that good news? Isn't that news that's good? Can't we all get behind that and say, man, if that's true, that is amazing. All right, now the second miracle in this passage starts in chapter 5, verse 1. What's going on here? There's a man, and he's demon-possessed. And Jesus cast the demons out of the man. And we see here that the kingdom of God arriving on earth deals with our deepest spiritual problem. It delivers us from bondage to spiritual forces that are way more powerful than us and out of our control. Because God's kingdom is about all of our life, not just our natural life, but there is a spiritual reality. Notice what it says about this man in verse 2. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, And immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. He's living in death. We put horror stories in in graveyards. His life is a place of death, right? 
He had this unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. God didn't make humans for this. When God made humans, he put them in a garden. And by this point, humans are living in graveyards. And why are they like this? Because there's this dark force in our world. Notice when Jesus asked him what his name is. Verse 9. The man replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now just imagine if you had a child and you gave your child a beautiful name. And imagine that if the life they were given, if the storms that blew in on them reduced them to a place where your, your given name is no longer adequate. And instead, they identify completely with the darkness that is tearing them apart. He's alienated from him own, his own self. This is the way it is in our world, but not when our king returns, not in God's kingdom. When the kingdom arrives, God heals this man and restores him. Notice verse 15, when the people of the city that used to chain him up, what a terrible thing to do to a human. Notice when they come out, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Now, what if that was your child? Do you see the beautiful picture of the news that's so good? When the kingdom of God arrives, God delivers people from this tired, broken world, from nature assaulting us and us assaulting nature, from demons and powerful forces ravaging people and tearing them apart. Now, isn't that good news? Like, you don't have to have, like, a degree in religion or anything. Like, just saying, okay, nature and humans are put back together in a better way, and these powerful forces stop destroying people. That's the gospel. That's the news that's so good. The next miracle, Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Here we see the kingdom of God arriving on earth not only means humans and nature restored to each other, not only humans with themselves restored and humans with God restored, delivered from the power of evil, but in chapter 5, verses 21 through 34, diseases are destroyed. Isn't that good news, right? I wish we could keep walking through every one of these miracles and notice all the glorious details. It's just amazing how good the news is that the kingdom of God has arrived. And when you begin to understand the news that is so good that in God's kingdom, it is the death of disease ravaging people. God's powerful kingdom on earth means the end of your cancer and the end of your immune compromised issues. Don't you long for that? Then in chapter 5, verse 35, we have the fourth miracle. We see the kingdom of God arriving on earth means the death of death. Death is killed. Death is no more. In Jesus, God has entered human history in love and power to restore every square inch of creation, all of creation and all of human life to live again under the benevolent reign of the king that is so good. 
So the miracles of Jesus, think of them like these tulips breaking through at the end of winter and the beginning of spring. These miracles, they're windows through which we catch a glimpse of the renewed cosmos where Satan and his demons have been cast out and sickness and pain are no more and death is gone forever and the creation itself is restored to its original beauty and harmony and there's no trace of sin's effect defacing or defiling God's new creation and everything you've suffered from, even the vestiges of your suffering are taken away. Now, isn't that good news? And so many of us have learned to tell the gospel in a way that's not good. It's really bad news. But this is the news that's good. And so as we move forward into a new season of life as a church, this is the central fact of our life. We are a group of people gathered around the magnetic center of the gospel that in Jesus, this hard-to-believe thing, has happened. The kingdom of God has arrived. Now remember I said Jesus gives a four-dimensional picture of his kingdom. He demonstrates his kingdom in his miracles. He teaches about the kingdom in his parables. So go back to the beginning of chapter 4. It's so wonderful how Mark wrote this part of Jesus' life. The first part of Mark chapter 4 are four parables teaching about the kingdom. And then he goes with four miracles demonstrating the kingdom. Now, in Jesus' parables, it is so hard for us to believe what I've just told you. Like, that's just like the stuff of fantasy, wishful thinking. And, And so the miracles weren't enough. Jesus also taught us how to think about the kingdom. And in these miracles, in these four miracles, in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 34, we see that Jesus is laying out some of his most fundamental teaching about what is the kingdom of God. And how do we need to understand it? First of all, Jesus teaches us, and this is surprising, that the kingdom of God is resistible. And that caught everybody listening to him off guard. Because they were expecting this Messiah to show up and to rule with a sword, and it was going to be irresistible. He was going to conquer bad power, in the same way bad power worked, with a sword, and he was just going to outfight it. But Jesus shows up and he says, look, the kingdom of God doesn't move like the kingdoms of this world move. The kingdom of God has the power to coerce you, but God will not do that. His kingdom is resistible. Jesus says this in verse 3, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And then the picture emerges. He's telling a parable of a a king. The kingdom has arrived. The king has arrived. But he tells it in the form of a poor farmer. He says the kingdom arrives the way a farmer plants seed. And some of those seed fall on the footpath where the dirt is packed and hard. And that, that, that path doesn't receive the seed. And some of the seed falls in rocky places among the thorns. In other words... God's kingdom can be resisted. You can sit in church every Sunday of your whole life. You can sing all these songs. You can read this Bible. You can fake everybody out. You can even fake yourself out. You can resist God's kingdom. The kingdom of God makes its way into our world in weakness. That's the first thing he wants us to know 
about his kingdom. The second thing he teaches about the kingdom is that the kingdom of God does not arrive all at once. We see this over in chapter 4, verses 30 through 34. Right now, the kingdom may be small. When he was talking, it was just a few people, and it may seem insignificant. Yet in Jesus, God's kingdom has arrived, and yet it is not yet here in its fullest sense. A third thing he teaches and that we need to learn about God's kingdom is that in the future, the kingdom of God, there will come a time when it is impossible to ignore it. It will be the largest of all the trees in the garden. It will be the most glorious of all the kingdoms. It will be the kingdom that it says in Revelation and Isaiah that the kings of the earth will be drawn to. It will attract everything and everybody. It will be irresistible. This comes up again and again in his teachings. Right now it's resistible, but there's coming a day when it will not be. There will be a future final judgment. We see this in, for example, Matthew chapter 13. God will ultimately save his creation by doing this, by judging the enemies that have ruined his creation. The fourth fundamental teaching about God's kingdom that Jesus gives here in Mark 4 and throughout his gospels is that the reason God is waiting, the reason it's resistible now and it's small now, one day it will be irresistible and it will cover the earth like the waters covers the seas. The reason he's waiting and didn't just do it all at once is because he wants many to enter the kingdom. We see this in Mark 4. One of my favorite places to see this is in Luke chapter 14, where he tells this beautiful story where a banquet is made ready. The table is set. It's covered in food and drink. And right before calling everybody to the table, the host of the banquet pauses and he waits. He, in, he suspends the enjoyment of the banquet. Why? Because he wants more people in the party. Especially the poor and the forgotten ones. That's why the delay. Now Jesus taught a lot about the kingdom. But these four things are the root teachings of his about his kingdom. And this is our core identity. This is Jesus' core identity. And so we're seeing by looking at his miracles, demonstrations of the kingdom, and we learn by listening to his parables the things he wants us to learn about the kingdom. And when you keep reading Mark's gospel or Matthew or Luke or John or any of them, all of them, as you follow the story of, of Jesus' life, you arrive at his death and resurrection and we learn in his cross and in his resurrection, we learn something else about the kingdom. In the cross, we learn that God will deliver the death blow to human sin and rebellion. And that that will be necessary for him to accomplish salvation. When we look at Jesus' crucifixion, we see that in his death, we have the self-giving love of God, his mercy and faithfulness and grace and justice and righteousness on full display. That's why we took this brutal, ugly thing across and made it beautiful. And that's why it sits all over churches. And that's why, that's what, what the gospel writers are all showing us is that it is through his death 
that Jesus is securing the victory of God's kingdom. And in, in all four gospels, the cross secures the victory three ways. Number one, all four gospels say the fundamental issue by the cross is that Jesus is battling evil. And on the cross, he is conquering evil and the dark shadowy forces that are ravaging our world. I preached on that several weeks ago. The second thing about the cross that all four Gospels show us is that on the cross, Jesus is sacrificing himself for us. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world through his own sacrificial death. And the third thing that all four Gospels show us about the cross is that Jesus on the cross is representing us. He's our representative. He did all of this. He died for us. He did all of this fighting against the darkness, sacrificing for our sins. He did that as our representative. The gospel writers all tell the story of Jesus on the cross echoing David fighting Goliath as the representative of Israel up against the big scaly chested serpent set on destroying the world. He conquers death and sin on our behalf so that we can share in the victory over sin and death by drawing near to Jesus. Okay, so what is the gospel? It's the news that's good. It's the news that God's good and gracious kingdom has arrived on earth to renew and heal all of creation. And we see this demonstrated in his miracles and taught in his parables and secured in his crucifixion, and finally, we see God's kingdom inaugurated in his resurrection. After Jesus' death, the Roman governor of that particular region, a man by the name of Pilate, gave permission to a Jewish man by the name of Joseph to take, not Jesus' father, Joseph, another, Joseph of Arimathea. He gave, the governor gave Joseph of Arimathea permission to take Jesus' body down from the cross and to prepare it for burial to lay in a tomb. Then some women who had been following Jesus go to the tomb uh, three days later to finish preparing his body for internment, and they discover that Jesus had been raised from the dead. John chapter 11 is is one of the easiest places to understand what the resurrection is about and how it's related to God's kingdom. John chapter 11 is when Jesus goes to the house of his friend, Lazarus, who's died. And in in verse 23, Jesus says to Lazarus, who's died, he says to his sister Martha, that Lazarus is going to rise again. And Martha responds, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's what the Jewish people were taught, that at the end of all things, God will show up and raise the dead who have been faithful. And Jesus responds, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Look, if you're ever with a loved one facing death, This is the comfort. The comfort is, you're about to go to sleep. And God will hold your soul in safekeeping. And I will see you again here with my own eyes 
And we will be together again with bodies. And we know this is true because God is so powerful and so faithful. And he already did it once. He did it with Jesus. And what he did with Jesus, raising him from the dead. If our child is dying, we say this. He's going to raise you from the dead. This is not the end. The reason death is not the end is because the creator didn't intend for death to be the end. Death is an imposter. It's a punk. And he defeated it on the cross. And when we open our hearts to King Jesus, we get to experience what Jesus experienced. He is the resurrection. In dying, he took upon himself the judgment of the world. In rising from the dead, he inaugurated the new creation, which is humans being raised and the Shenandoah Valley being, being made even more beautiful. In all the mountaintops we've erased, restored. In all of the water we've polluted, purified. In us raised up to live life on this earth, healed and renewed with bodies that are no longer susceptible to death or disease and relationships that are no longer susceptible to miscommunication and to betrayal. Isn't that good news? Uh, Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien said, I'm a Christian because it's the best story I've ever heard. Isn't this the best story you've ever heard? That's the news that's so good. And what happens is when we tell this story and live this story, that is our job in the city is to celebrate that story and to adore King Jesus for this and to offer this to our city. Now go back with me to where we started. Mark chapter 1. Let's listen again to the suitcase, to the summary. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The, finally, finally, the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. And then he says, repent. Repent. And believe the gospel. So here's the deal. Remember how I said earlier, you can go to church every Sunday. You can read this Bible. Your parents can have this stuff. But you can resist it. The opposite of resisting it is believing it. See, repent and believe the gospel means you hear the story. And rising up in you is awe and gratitude. Thank you to the creator who didn't give up on us or this creation. And rising up in you is, wow, if he loves me that much, I'm going to love him back. It's an answering love. And rising up inside of you is, wow, if he's that loyal to this world and to me, I'm going to be loyal to him. An answering loyalty, an answering allegiance, and looking at all the ways that you've lived in the death ways. All the ways that you've bought into the death ways of this world. Holding back forgiveness from people who've sinned against you. Refusing to be kind because you're so deeply committed to your own selfishness. 
All of these ways that we walk in the death ways, looking at the ways that we've been unfaithful people and unloving people and, and, and people who just think that purity and holiness doesn't matter and all the ways that we've let ourselves off the hook and all the ways we've been complicit with the dark forces and the brokenness of this world and feeling a grief over that and saying to the king who loves you so much to deliver you from that that he sacrificed his own life for you, saying to him, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for living that way. And when we do that, that's what it means to become a Christian. That's what it means to repent and to believe this story. Have you done that? Have you? Have you? Is inside of you, there, is there an answering love to the love of God? Is there a responding, reciprocating loyalty to the loyalty of King Jesus? Because that's what, that was the first thing Jesus said. It's here, this beautiful thing. Now repent of the ways you've not been living like this and believe this. That's the core of our church. That's what drives us. That's the heart that beats the blood through the veins and through everything we do. Everything, all this work we do. That's the gospel, the news that's so good of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.